Lucifer Moon's Lightbringer presents The Mythical Astronomy of Ice and Fire The Weirwood Compendium Chapter 3 Garth of the Gallows Hey there, friends, patrons, and mythical astronomers. It's your starry host, Lucifer Means Lightbringer. But you can call me LML, since that's a little less cumbersome, and we're friends by now. I've been hard at work writing the past month. In fact, I started writing out one episode and ended up writing three. I've been going deep into the woods, aided by the helpful whisperings of forest and form friends alike, searching for the secrets of the heart trees, and it turns out there's quite a bit to explore. I began to really focus in on the connections between Odin and Yggdrasil and the Green Seers and the Weirwoods, originally thinking to cover most of that in one episode, but I ended up finding it more useful to just take one Odin idea at a time. That way we can keep the focus predominantly on A Song of Ice and Fire, spending most of our time talking about how these Odin-related ideas manifest in the main story, which is the important part, and that'll leave us time to go over the relevant sections of A Song of Ice and Fire text with our standard level of scrutiny. But first, before all that, I have a very special treat for you, a prelude to a kill, as it were. Before we talk about Norse gods hung on trees, we're going to rip into some straight A Song of Ice and Fire mythology, that of the first Storm King during God's Grief, and the fair Elenai, the daughter of the gods. I've been mentioning Durin around the margins here and there, but it's time to give him and Elenai their due. And before that, a quick word of thanks is in order. Thanks to Animals as Leaders for providing their amazing music to enhance our show. A huge thank you to Mr. Martin Lewis, the reader, who's been a fabulous addition to our podcast with his vocal acting. Martin is currently performing chapters from the first novel, A Game of Thrones, on his Facebook page, Echoes of Ice and Fire, and the link to that is at lucifermeanslightbringer.com, so check that out. And if you're interested in contacting Martin about a project in need of his vocal prowess, that Facebook page is the place to get a hold of him. Thanks also to my lovely wife, the Amethyst Koala, who did our female vocal performances, and so much more. Thanks to Mr. George R.R. Martin for sharing his art with us at what I'm sure we'd all agree is a very reasonable cost. And of course, most of all, thanks to our Patreon supporters. For without their support, there would be no mythical astronomy of ice and fire here in the 17th year of the 21st century. We have three new Zodiac patrons to announce today, and only two Zodiac slots left. So next episode, we'll be announcing some new starry positions that will be up for grabs. As always, the matching text to this podcast can be found at lucifermeanslightbringer.com, and that's also where you can sign up to support us on Patreon if you feel inspired to do so. All right, let's get to it. Antler Hats and Grieving Gods This section is brought to you by Patreon supporter Sir Dionysus of House Galadon, earthly avatar of Heavenly Houses Virgo and Libra, wielder of the Just Maid, a Valyrian steel sword with a milk glass pommel in the shape of a fair maiden. 
All right, well, we've been running around ancient Westeros identifying people that might wear antler hats, and yet we really haven't talked very much about Durin God's Grief. We've made a big deal out of the Horned Lord attributes of Garth the Green and the Sacred Order of Green Men, and we've seen the Horn God's symbolism expressed supremely well by the brothers Baratheon, who descend from the Storm Kings of Durandon. So what about the mythology of the first Storm King, from whom those Baratheon brothers inherited their Stagman symbolism? When we talked about the Hammer of the Waters being a moon meteor, I mentioned that the violent storms sent by angry gods against the god's grief might have been an account of the tsunamis, which would have followed any kind of sudden collapse of the Arm of Dorne. But now that we appreciate the significance of the antler horns as a symbol in A Song of Ice and Fire, namely that these horned folk, whomever and whatever they were, might have been the green seers responsible for bringing down the moon, let's take a closer look at this fable of a fellow with an antler hat, who stole from heaven and caused a great storm and flood. It comes to us from Catelyn's inner monologue in A Clash of Kings. The song said that Storm's End had been raised in ancient days by Durin, the first Storm King, who had won the love of the fair Elenai, daughter of the sea god and the goddess of the wind. On the night of their wedding, Elenai had yielded her maidenhood to a mortal's love, and thus doomed herself to a mortal's death and her grieving parents had unleashed their wrath and sent the winds and waters to batter down Durin's hold. His friends and brothers and wedding guests were crushed beneath collapsing walls or blown out to sea, but Elenai sheltered Durin within her arms so he took no harm, and when the dawn came at last, he declared war upon the gods and vowed to rebuild. Since we've talked quite a bit about Horned Lords already, the first thing we need to do is analyze Elenai, so let's talk goddesses for a minute. Besides, we've been a little heavy on the male characters and Lightbringer and swords and thrusting implements, and so, you know, we need to balance things out a little bit. Elenai is an aquatic goddess, being born of the wind and the sea. A paragraph later in Catelyn's recounting of the tale, we learn that when the gods continued to send storms to crush Durin's efforts at rebuilding, Durin's people begged him to give Elenai back to the sea, again implying that she is an aquatic figure. That means that she can probably be thought of as a mermaid goddess. Can an aquatic goddess be a moon goddess? Yes, absolutely. The relationship between the moon and the tides has been known for eons and has spawned many myths. And we already know, or think we know, that part of the cracked open moon falls into the sea and becomes a kind of drowned goddess. And that might be the kind of figure that we're talking about here with Elenai. As I like to say, mermaids are just goddesses that go swimming. I mentioned a few episodes back that there's a Greek Okeanid water nymph named Nyssa, N-Y-S-S-A, so the name Nyssa Nyssa may be in part chosen to give us the idea of a mermaid goddess. It seems likely, with all the emphasis on moon drownings that we've seen. Elenai's fall from heaven is implied by the idea that she gave up her status as an immortal god to wed the god's grief, dooming herself to a mortal's death. She's going from the realm of heaven to the realm of earth, in other words. Durin's love for Elenai will ultimately kill her, just as Azor Ahai supposedly slew his wife, though he loved her best of all that is in this world. We've got reason to doubt the truth of that, but the themes of the myths match. A love that kills something I referred to as sex and swordplay way back in episode one. Elenai sounds like a variation on Helen, and is most likely a reference to the Greek goddess Helen, aka Helen of Troy. 
Helen is variously thought to mean bright, shining one, torch, and a few other derivative ideas, which makes you think of a star or a moon, and indeed Helen is usually, but not always, associated with the moon. Some scholars think Helen is phonetically related to Selene, the primary Greek moon goddess. And if that's the case, then the Greeks, who are called the Helens, might be called moon people. Now, Helen is the most beautiful woman in the world, famously referred to as the face that launched a thousand ships, a reference to the Trojan War being fought over her abduction to Troy by Paris. Daenerys is also called the most beautiful woman in the world, and she is, of course, the primary example of our fallen moon maiden. The thousand Greek ships launched by the abduction of Helen the Moon Maiden seem to have incarnated into a song of ice and fire as the 100 ships of the Ironborn fleet that is sailing to Slaver's Bay to bring Daenerys back home. In mythical astronomy terminology, it's pretty easy to see that the face that launched a thousand ships translates to the moon face that launched a thousand thousand meteor dragons. I'll also point out that the Dornish seem to refer to the Milky Way as Nymeria's 10,000 ships, so the idea of stars as a fleet of ships is already alive and well in the story. There's a fabulous quote from A Feast for Crows which ties together these two manifestations of Helen's moon fleet, the Iron Fleet and the Moon Meteors. Fittingly, it comes from Victarion's The Iron Captain chapter, because Victarion is the man who leads the Iron Fleet to bring the most beautiful moon maiden back home. Vic is walking along the strand with his niece, Asha Greyjoy, and we read, Outside the tent... The wind was rising. Clouds raced across the moon's pale face. They looked a bit like galleys, stroking hard to ram. The stars were few and faint. All along the strand, the longships rested, tall masts rising like a forest from the surf. Victorian could hear their hulls creaking as they settled on the sand. He heard the keening of their lines, the sound of banners flapping. Beyond... In the deeper waters of the bay, larger ships bobbed at anchor, grim shadows wreathed in mist. You'll notice that the actual ships are described like clouds, grim shadows wreathed in mist, while the clouds themselves are described as ships. This is to make it clear that the ships sailing across the moon symbolize the Iron Fleet, which will be launched to rescue Daenerys. And I've put rescue in big, heavy air quotes. The stars are also mentioned right after the cloud ships to help us draw that association, and of course we see the familiar ships as trees symbolism of the sea dragon. Hello, sea dragon. Another good correlation to the Song of Ice and Fire fallen moon goddess archetype is found in Helen's birth. The story is that Zeus, while in the form of a swan, seduced the queen of Sparta, Leto, resulting in a magical egg which gave birth to Helen and various brothers and sisters, depending on the myth. According to the Carthine legend, the falling moon meteors hatched from a lunar egg, and here we find that Helen has hatched from an egg. So you can see why Martin would use this myth as a part of the inspiration for his own abducted moon maiden ideas. Zeus is, of course, a storm god, meaning that Helen and Elenai both can claim the storm god as their father. Finally, the swan heritage of Helen also adds a bit to the aquatic ideas around Elenai. Bright, shining Helen also reminds us of the translation of Lucifer as shining one, lightbringer, etc. And accordingly, Helen is actually sometimes associated with the goddess Aphrodite, the Greek forerunner to the Roman Venus, being depicted in similar fashion. Helen was not regarded as Aphrodite, 
but as being Aphrodite-like. Something like a part of Aphrodite reborn on the Earth, you might say. This is important because, as we have seen, George has shifted the Lightbringer Morning Star symbolism of Venus onto the Moon Meteors and the Comet. Essentially, in A Song of Ice and Fire, the Moon transforms from a Moon Goddess to a falling Venus or falling even star when the Moon explodes and becomes falling meteors. That's why most of our Moon Maidens, such as Daenerys, draw from both Moon Goddess and Morning Star Goddess mythology. Aphrodite slides right into this picture as she is already a fallen star goddess. Her name translates to foam-born because Aphrodite was born in the foam of the sea after the sky god Oronos was castrated and his holy seed fell from heaven and landed in the sea. You can see the clear mythical astronomy here. Venus appears to descend to the horizon every night when it is in the even star position, seeming to sink into the sea for anyone living on a westward-facing coastline. The Greeks saw Venus sinking into the ocean and imagined her life beginning as a fallen star seed, with her subsequent birth from the foam representing Venus rising again from the horizon as the morning star. Thus, Aphrodite is a natural fit for George's idea of a moon maiden that turns into a falling star and is then reborn. It's just a more elegant version of the sea dragon myth, in other words. That's why George hangs this excellent Aphrodite reference on beautiful Daenerys in A Dance with Dragons. Send Eri and Jiki if you would be so good. And Missande. I need to change to make myself beautiful. She said as much to her handmaids when they came. What does your grace wish to wear? Starlight and sea foam, Danny thought and a wisp of silk that leaves my left breast bare for Dario's delight. Oh, and flowers for my hair. I'm definitely not the first one to catch this. The phrase sea foam jumps out to anyone familiar with the Aphrodite myth, and calling Danny beautiful in the same passage reinforces the idea. And again, as Euron is sending Victarion in the Iron Fleet to go rescue Daenerys, that is when he calls Danny the most beautiful woman in the world, just to make sure we get the idea. And when I talk about beautiful Venus falling as an even star, some of you might be thinking of Brienne the Beauty, who comes from Evenfall Hall and whose father is called the Even Star. That's another Venus Aphrodite reference for a moon maiden who, like Danny, turns into a falling star, even star character. Or perhaps you might be thinking of the fabled beauty of Ashara Dane, who leapt from a tower into the sea at a place called Starfall. If she survived with a secret identity, then she would have been reborn by falling into the sea. I wouldn't wager on this being the case, but cross your fingers because it would be great symbolism and just plain old fun to have another Dane around to talk to. This, then, is how we should view Elenai, I believe, the moon goddess, plucked from the heavens and fallen into the sea, where she became Durin's aquatic goddess. The picture snaps into place when you consider Durin God's grief again. He stole Elenai from the gods, from the heavens, and brought her down to earth and to mortal existence. Again, we are reminded of Helen of Troy, the beautiful daughter of the storm god, whose abduction at the hands of a hubristic mortal man provoked a devastating war in the fall of Troy. Even though both Elenai and Helen came willingly, though I cry foul on Paris using an all-powerful love goddess to help him seduce a woman, which is what he did, it still serves the same function as stealing the fire of the gods or pulling down the moon. The Grey King stole the fire of the Storm God, Durin stole the daughter of the Storm God, but they're really the same thing. 
Don't forget that one of the meanings of Helen is torch, aligning her with the burning brand symbol, which has been used to describe the fire that falls from heaven and sometimes lands in the sea. Therefore, we can say that in the Duran story, the moon is a goddess and she is stolen and possessed by a horned lord figure. A very good match to the green seers pulling down the moon monomyth that we've been tracing out lately, both in deed and in theme. Once again, it would appear that pulling down the moon was an act of defiance and hubris against the gods, a theft committed by a horned lord or greenseer. And what happens when the moon goddess falls to earth and lands in the sea? Why, horrific storms and floods, and a body count to match, and that's exactly what happens in the Durin God's Grief story, when it says that the sea and wind gods sent winds and waters to batter Durin's hold, that means that it was more than just a storm. It was a storm and a flood, an attack by the wind and the sea. Just as the sea dragon drowns whole islands in her wrath, the descent of Elenai to earth brings a flood and a tempest. The same passage from A Clash of Kings also says that, Gale winds came howling up Shipbreaker Bay, driving great walls of water before them. And where I come from, great walls of water racing towards your home are called a tsunami. In 2004, we saw what kind of horrendous damage and loss of life that a 100-foot wall of moving water can bring when an offshore earthquake triggered a tsunami that hammered Indonesia and the rest of the Indian Ocean. Even tsunami waves of much less than 100 feet high can cause tremendous damage and death. The flood aspect of the Durin God's Grief story is important because I believe that this myth is actually a memory of the breaking of the Arm of Dorn, or at least a memory of the fallout of the breaking. Any kind of sizable land collapse triggered by an earthquake or meteor strike along the narrow land bridge that was the Arm of Dorn would almost certainly have sent massive tidal waves racing up the newly created narrow sea, and I think this is the best candidate to explain the storms and floods of Durin's tale. There's an additional clue about this at the end of the story, after Durin builds his seventh castle, supposedly the current keep of Storm's End. No matter how the tale was told, the end was always the same. Though the angry gods threw storm after storm against it, the seventh castle stood defiant, and Durin Godsgrief and fair Elenai dwelt there together until the end of their days. Gods do not forget, and still the gales came raging up the narrow sea, yet storm's end endured through centuries and tens of centuries, a castle like no other. In other words, the story is implying a permanent change in the weather pattern of the area. Ever since this one dramatic event, this combined flood and superstorm, ever since then, we've had gales and storms raging up the narrow sea. This new weather pattern is nicely explained by the hypothesis that the flood of the Durin God's Grief story is in fact a mythicized account of the breaking of the Arm of Dorn. Whenever and however it happened, the breaking of the Arm and the joining of the Shivering Sea to the Summer Sea would have completely changed the ocean currents, which would in turn have had all kinds of effects on climate, both regionally and globally. The temperatures of the seas themselves would change, and although I am not anything remotely close to a climatologist or a meteorologist, I do know that ocean temperatures and air temperatures are primary factors in the precipitation of storms. The breaking of the Arm of Dorn, according to our research, was accomplished by green seers pulling down the moon, and that's essentially the story that the Dern and Elenai legend tells. 
Durin pulled down the Moon Maiden, and this pissed off the powers that be big time. This means that the Storm King, who steals the Moon Goddess, is yet another aspect of the Azor High archetype, or of the Azor High people, as we've come to say. Once again, we find a horned lord playing the Azor High role of Moonbreaker and stealer of godly things. Once again, we find this overlap between Garth people, horned lords, and Azor High people, who we think of as the first dragon lords. As we've seen, the Garth side of things tends to line up with the Summer King fertility god symbolism, while the Azor High reborn side of things tends to line up with the Winter King death god symbolism. And it seems that this translates on the ground as horned green men undergoing some kind of fiery death transformation and emerging as Azor Ahai people. In turn, I do suspect the dragon bond and the blood of the dragon phenomenon to be a mutation of green seer abilities, but that's really a subject for another day. It shouldn't be strange to think of Azor High as a storm figure or a storm king, because we've shown that the undead stag man figure is a very important aspect of Azor High Reborn, and the storm kings are definitely OG stag men. The Grey King possessed the storm god's thunderbolt, and this can be seen as endowing the Azor High figure with that same power of thunder and lightning. You could also simply say that Azor High called down the Thunderbolt when he broke the moon, and that this makes him the master of the storm, the Storm King. His hand is the fiery hand that flings the meteors, and he's the one that can call down the Storm of Swords. You may also remember all the way back to Bloodstone Compendium 2, where we talked about Bloodstone's associations with lightning and thunder, and how Beric is an Azor High character who is called the Lightning Lord. Thus, everything about Storm King mythology fits in nicely with that of the Grey King and Azor High. Consider the two high-profile infusions of dragon blood into the line of Storm Kings, once at the inception of House Baratheon, and again two generations before the main story. We are told in A Game of Thrones that King Robert's grandmother was a Targaryen, Rael Targaryen, the daughter of Aegon V, who's Egg from Duncan Egg, and Black Betha Blackwood, making Robert a horned god with a bit of dragon blood. After Robert defeats Rhaegar, he does become more dragon-like, sitting on the throne of the Dragon Kings in the castle of the Dragon Kings, and even wondering on his deathbed if he'd been as bad a king as Ares. Ned puts a finger on this when he stands up to Robert's order to kill Daenerys and asks why they deposed Ares, if not to end the killing of children and innocents. The line of Baratheon is actually founded by a bastard dragon, Ori's Baratheon, who was thought to be a bastard brother to Aegon the Conqueror. Ori's defeated the last Storm King, Argilac the Arrogant, during the conquest, and afterward, he took Argilac's daughter Lady Argella to wife and adopted the Storm King's stag sigil and antlered crown and helm. His grandson, Robar Baratheon, married the Dowager Queen Alyssa Valerion after Aenys Targaryen died, and their daughter married back into the Targaryen line. On a general level, all of this intermingling of stagman blood and dragon blood serves to reinforce my basic premise, that Garth people and Azor High people are related to one another, and more specifically, it's showing us the cycle of one turning into the other. Now think about the fact that a wooden fish trap over a river can be called either a fishing weir or a fish garth, and how that alludes to the weirwoods as a kind of garth tree, an idea reinforced by the fact that green man figures from world mythology can either have antlers or branches on their head. With that in mind, compare the Durn Durndon myth to the scene at the Nightfort. 
The twisted, faceless Nightfort Weirwood tree pulling down the moon seems to symbolize naughty sorcerers using green seer magic to pull down the moon, and that is essentially the same thing expressed by Durin the Horned Lord pulling down Elenai. We could say that the Weirwood represents the green seer himself, but I think it's probably more accurate to say that the Weirwood acting like a person is telling us about people using Weirwoods to work sorcery. Finally, take note of the detail in the legend of when this deadly storm and flood occurs. It comes at Durn and Elenai's wedding. This reminds us of the alchemical wedding of Daenerys Targaryen, which symbolizes the birth of the dragons in a firestorm of destruction, and of the greater concept of the sun and the moon as a husband and wife, whose copulation produces the Lightbringer meteors. This is the crux of the God's Grief myth. Horned lords stole the moon. Green seers did bring down the hammer of the waters on the arm of Dorne, but they did so by pulling the moon down to earth. And they may not have been children of the forest green seers. A memory of Merlings. This section is brought to you by the support of our new Zodiac patron, the mystery knight known only as Rusted Revolver, the Lilith Walker, great Dane friend and earthly avatar of Heavenly House Pisces. Now, as it happens, there are a lot of direct comparisons to be drawn between the Grey King and Durin God's Grief, and between the Ironborn and the people of the Stormlands. Let's compare the legendary monarchs first, and then the cultures they gave rise to. First off, you'll notice that like Durin God's Grief, the Grey King is also said to have taken a mermaid to wife. Aha! I didn't dwell on the mermaid part of the Grey King's story previously, because I wanted to save it for when we talked about Elenai, and here we are. The Ironborn folklore seems to recall a moon meteor impact, imagined as a mighty thunderbolt or an island-drowning sea dragon, or as a drowned god, and I somewhat jokingly said that we ought to consider the drowned god as a drowned goddess, because they're really just talking about the fallen moon goddess. The Grey King's taking a mermaid to wife communicates the same idea, an aquatic moon goddess wife risen from the depths. Aaron calls the drowned god, Lord God who drowned for us, thus equating the drowned moon deity as a sacrifice, just as Nissa Nissa can be viewed as a sacrifice. The slain sea dragon Naga, a female dragon, you'll note, passed on her living fire to the Grey King, and this also implies a moon sacrifice to transmit the fire of the gods into the hands of the Moonbreaker. That means that there are actually three Grey King myths which could refer to the pulling down of the moon, slaying the sea dragon and stealing her fire, calling down the thunderbolt and possessing the fire of the burning tree, and now taking a mermaid to wife. Next up in the Grey King-Storm King comparison, the spiky wooden crowns of the Ironborn, both Driftwood and Weirwood, versus the stag crowns and antlered helms of the Storm Kings. We just mentioned the interchangeability of wearing horns or branches on your head in regards to Green Man folklore, and that means that the Grey King and Driftwood Kings of the Ironborn and the antler hat wearing folk of the Stormlands are both drawing from horned nature god mythology. This raises the obvious possibility that both are Garth people, of the same line of horned figures that gave rise to the legend of Garth and the Green Men, or perhaps we might say it strengthens our existing hypothesis about that being the case. I also highly recommend reading an essay on Westeros.org by my good friend Crowfood's daughter regarding the Grey King and Garth being brothers, 
who represent the Winter King, Summer King cycle. And the link to that is on LucifermeansLightbringer.com. She has some really great insight into the story of House Goodbrother, supposedly descended from the leal elder brother of the Grey King. Consider it required reading, in fact. It's that good. We've found both Summer Oak King life-associated symbolism and the opposite Death Winter Holly King symbolism with the Baratheon brothers, and the same is also true to a lesser extent with the Grey King. That's because all of these horned figures are representing different parts of the cycle, and the figures themselves are not static, but depict the transitions. Although the Ironborn primarily express the death, reaping, killing side of things, the Grey King is said to have left a hundred sons behind him, who admittedly did promptly engage in an orgy of kinslaying, which left only 16 survivors. And as Crowfood's daughter points out in her essay, House Goodbrother shows a consistent expression of summer king and fertility ideas, punctuated by the occasional opposite kind of bad brother figure. We aren't told how many offspring during God's grief left, but we are told that everyone else in the immediate vicinity was killed during the great storm and flood at their wedding, with Durin and Elenai presumably repopulating the Stormlands with their progeny and establishing a line of kings that lasted 8,000 years. To put it simply, we might say that both the Grey King and Durin God's Grief were remembered as the originators of a new and long-lasting culture, and in doing so are giving us the fertility ideas to go along with their antler hats and wooden hats. The Storm King kind of shows us the moment of transition between a green Summer King figure to a dead Winter King. Think of the Black Stag Sigil's implication of a Dark Stag figure. The Grey King primarily shows us the aftermath of the transition, where he's taken possession of the fire of the gods, but has turned grey and corpse-like. Third point of comparison, we have the fact that Durn God's Grief is the only other man in Westeros besides the Grey King who was said to live for a thousand years. Durn is actually called the King of a Thousand Years, while the Grey King was said to rule for a thousand years and seven. This long life could well be an exaggeration, or it could be a clue about someone who has extended their lifespan through green seer magic and or undeath transformation. Fourth, we have the floods, as I mentioned a moment ago. The Grey King fought against the island-drowning sea dragon, which sure sounds like a story about a flood, and Durin provoked the flood and storm by opposing the wind and sea gods. It's also said that the storm god drowned Naga's fire after the Grey King died, which is another hint about a flood associated with the Grey King and like the God's Grief tale, tells the story of a man who battled against storms and floods sent by an angry god he had just stolen from. Finally, we have the idea of the fallen moon providing shelter. Elenai sheltered Durn from the storm and flood which killed everyone else, and the Grey King fashioned a long haul from the bones of Naga the Sea Dragon. That reminds us of the biblical Leviathan, whose skin God is prophesied to use to make a covering of light over the world in the end times, something we looked at while examining sea dragon and sea serpent myths. Now the idea that the legends of the Grey King and Durin God's Grief are referring to the same person or group of moon-antagonizing people is strengthened by the extensive correlations between the Ironborn and the people of the Stormlands, which many in the fandom have picked up on. Let's broaden the comparison to the two cultures that the Grey King and Durin God's Grief gave rise to, and you'll see what I mean. There's the dorky stuff, like the reverse sigils, a black stag on gold for Baratheon and Durandon, and a golden kraken on black for the Greyjoys. Ubernerds have spotted the Thor's hammer connections. Thor is the Norse storm god whose hammer shoots thunderbolts, 
and on one hand we have Robert the Stormlord with a mighty hammer, and on the other we have a storm god shooting thunderbolts at the Grey King, and of course the drowned god speaking in the language of Leviathan, which turns out to be the hammering of the waves. The most important and obvious parallel, however, is found in the pantheons of the two cultures. They both see two gods in the world, a sea god and a storm, wind, or sky god. In the Stormlands mythology, they're simply called the sea god and the goddess of the wind, while the Ironborn famously have the drowned god and the storm god. That's pretty darn similar. Now, it could be a case of mutual invention of people who both live by the stormy sea, but we actually see a very similar set of beliefs elsewhere, most notably with the occasionally web-fingered folks on the Three Sisters, which in case you forgot are those three small islands north of the Vale of Arn, which Davos stops at on the way to White Harbor. They speak of the Lady of the Waves and the Lord of the Skies, and sky gods, storm gods, and wind gods are all in the same general vein, so this is really another match for the sea-wind god dichotomy of the Stormlands and Iron Islands. When the Lady of the Waves and the Lord of the Skies mate, they give birth to storms. And this suggests that Elenai, the child of the wind and sea gods, may be seen as the storm herself, just as Daenerys is the stormborn, and just as the moon meteor children arrive in the form of a firestorm of steel rain, or as a mighty thunderbolt. To this I will also add that the Tullys, a house descended from the first men, speak of sending their dead to the watery halls where the Tullys held eternal court with schools of fish, their last attendants. Compare that to the drowned gods' watery halls where the dead of the ironborn go to feast and be attended by mermaids, and consider the Tullys' love of dressing up in fish people armor, and all the other stuff from the three sisters in the stormlands, and you can start to see the remnants of a very old, aquatic-based religion stretching across the middle of Westeros from the Iron Islands in the west to the Stormlands and Three Sisters in the east. We might also think of the Valerians on the nearby Isle of Driftmark, because the Valerians are said to have won a driftwood throne from the Merling King. The Merling King seems to have been regarded as a god, due to the presence of a Merlin King statue in the House of Black and White, which is a home for all the various death gods in the world. This implies that the Merlin King is a death god or underworld deity, in addition to his obvious identity as an underwater deity. Merlin King definitely sounds like a Poseidon figure, and Poseidon is also seen as an underworld figure in some instances, as the sea is often regarded as a kind of underworld, for obvious reasons. The Merlin King is also the name of the boat that Peter Baelish uses to snatch Sansa the Moonmaiden away from King's Landing, which fits the pattern of death figures stealing Moonmaidens. But setting aside the symbolism, it's simply another sign of an aquatic religion across the middle of Westeros, one that might have connected people on both coasts of ancient, pre-long night Westeros. You know how we are told that the first men adopted the religion of the Children of the Forest after they signed the pact? which followed shortly after the Hammer of the Waters? This raises the interesting question of what religion the first men might have followed before the Hammer fell and the pact was signed. Well, we can probably answer that now. This aquatic-based sea and sky god religion was one, and the other major one would have been the worship of Garth the Green. These two may have even overlapped a bit, given what we have seen of horned people wrapped up in legends with sea and storm gods. These two ancient religions or belief sets linger on, underneath a heavy layer of thousands of years of first men worshipping the old gods and thousands more worshipping the seven. In fact, let's talk timeline for a quick second, because that is a very important component of the Hammer of the Waters event. 
By now, we've laid out enough evidence to show that the hammer of the waters might have been a moon meteor, that it's appropriate to consider the major adjustment to the timeline of ancient Westeros that it would necessitate if true. Namely, that the hammer of the waters fell at the time of the long night, with the famous pact between the first men and the children of the forest likely being signed during or after the long night. If this is the case, the mystery of why the first men signed the pact and switched religions when they were clearly winning the greater struggle for domination of Westeros is solved. The children helped to save mankind from the Long Night and the others, as the story of the last hero suggests. The Long Night disaster provided the cultural reset button and clean slate that would certainly have helped to facilitate a group of people taking up the religion of their former enemy en masse, and the help the children provided supplies the motivation. As I speculated in the Green Zombie series, the forming of the Night's Watch, who originally swore their Night's Watch vows to the Green Seers, would likely have been a part of this pact, a debt of gratitude and honor paid to the Green Seers who helped the last hero win the War for the Dawn. According to this alternate timeline, most of the legendary conflicts between the Children and the First Men would probably have occurred before the Long Night, with a period of cooperation coming after the Long Night. I don't want to get too dogmatic about that, because we surely had some cooperation slash interbreeding before the Long Night, and we eventually had some conflict afterwards as humans began to forget or dishonor the pact. But we do see this idea of fighting before the Long Night and cooperation afterward in the early mythical history of Dern God's Grief as it happens. We see it in the Dern tale itself, where Dern breaks the moon and causes all hell to break loose, but then gets help from the children to rebuild. We also see it in the father-to-son lineage of the first Durandon, as Durand Godsgrief, the moonbreaker and naughty greenseer, is said to have taken the rainwood from the children of the forest, but his son, Durand the Devout, returned it to them. If the first Durand lines up with the moonbreaker figure, he would have been the guy who took the greenseer magic of the children of the forest and did something extremely naughty with it, causing the long night, so it makes sense that he might be seen as hostile to the children, perhaps even sacrificing them to work blood magic, as some legends of the Hammer of the Waters suggest. Durin's devout son, meanwhile, would be the one to live immediately after the Long Night, setting aside the idea of people who live for a thousand years anyway, and thus immediately after the Pact, according to my alternate timeline, when the first men were newly devoted to the religion of the children. Accordingly, Durin the devout, son of the God's Grief, was remembered as being friendly with the children, returning to them the rainwood, which his father had taken. The Starks show us something very similar. Bran the Builder was friendly with the children and even learned their language, but his father might have been Brandon of the Bloody Blade, who drove the giants from the Reach and warred against the children of the forest, slaying so many at Blue Lake that it has been known as Red Lake ever since, according to the World of Ice and Fire. Brandon of the Bloody Blade's father was, in turn, Garth the Green, a fertility god who planted three weirwoods at Highgarden known as the Three Singers. It's a cycle, like I said, from Summer King to Winter King to Summer King again. Brandon of the Bloody Blade sounds like our naughty Greenseer figure, the Moonbreaker, and slaying all those children might have been the same slaughter that was associated with calling down the Hammer of the Waters. Bran the Builder, if that's his son, would correlate with the last hero, potentially, which makes a great deal of sense. This alternate timeline means that Durin God's Grief would have lived at the time of the Long Night, and he was the first Storm King anyone remembered. 
This makes sense to me because I believe the long night should be viewed as a cultural bottleneck through which very little in the way of established order would have survived. Right after the long night is when mankind would have been establishing new centers of power and new royal lineages, and that's what we see from Dern's children. It's the same story on the Iron Islands, where the Moonbreaker figure is the father of their nation and basically the oldest legendary character in their cultural memory. That brings us right back to Brandon of the Bloody Blade and Bran the Builder. Bran the Builder is remembered as having founded House Stark, but if Brandon of the Bloody Blade lived earlier, as the legends suggest, then we could see him as the first Stark, and thus again we see the Moonbreaker as the oldest remembered ancestor of the great house founded in the aftermath of the Long Night. The Durn tale actually has a connection to Bran the Builder and to strange building techniques. A seventh castle he raised, most massive of all. Some said the children of the forest helped him build it, shaping the stones with magic. Others claimed that a small boy told him what he must do, a boy who would grow to be Bran the Builder. I've mentioned that shaping stone with magic is not something we've associated with the children, but it is the hallmark of Dragonlord construction. Storm's End isn't made with fused stone, at least not on the outside that we can see, but it is still interesting that the folktale here mingles Dragonlord building techniques with ideas about the children building with magic. Could the truth here have involved not children using Dragonlord construction, but horned lords who are not quite human and not quite elf, people who have some sort of overlap with the fused stone builders? That's who I have pegged Durn Godsgrief as, a horned lord, and he's the one who is said to have built Storm's End. So I'm not really proposing anything too crazy when I propose that horned lords or green men built Storm's End. I also look at this idea of the children helping Durn, or perhaps his offspring, to rebuild after the Great Flood as a possible allusion to the idea of children helping mankind after the Long Night, and that's also the context in which I see Bran the Builder's myth, which has the childlike Bran running around ancient Westeros helping great houses build their first castles, and also learning the language of the children of the forest, as I mentioned. It really seems like the children pretty clearly helped mankind get up off their ass after the long night, and this is consistent with just having signed the pact. It's also worth drawing a comparison between Storm's End and Castle Pike on the Iron Islands. As we discussed in our episodes with History of Westeros about the Great Empire of the Dawn, the Maesters say that round towers were only built more recently, sometime after the Andals came over to Westeros, and thus the older structures should not have round tower construction. For the most part, this seems to be true, but the exceptions are notable. Storm's End is one giant round tower, and the towers of Castle Pike, including the main keep, is a round tower design. Pike is almost certain to date back to the very remotest antiquity, eons before the arrival of the Andals, and Storm's End may well be the same story. So what we have here are two round tower castles of very impressive engineering existing when they shouldn't, according to the Maesters. The first keep of Winterfell, the oldest part of the castle supposedly built by Bran the Builder, is also a round tower design for what it's worth, although it's not worth as much because we're told that Winterfell's been rebuilt countless times and it's impossible to tell who built what and when. I think it's easy to see the hypothesis that is presenting itself. These horned Garth people seem to have been a builder culture. They're also the primary suspect for the creation of the wall, in my opinion. Recall that the wall is said to have been built perhaps by giants or with the help of the children of the forest. The truth may be these horned lords, who may be some sort of race of tall elvish people. Don't forget that Bran is supposedly descended from Garth, 
and is said to have visited the Reach to help Uthor Hightower, a man who married a daughter of Garth, with the construction of the final version of the Hightower at Old Town. There's some sort of intersection between House Stark and Bran the Builder and these horned green men, and this surely goes right to the heart of the mystery of the origins of House Stark and the creation of the Wall. I'll finish this section by mentioning the symbolism of Storm's End itself. Storm's End is a place whose legend is all about the moon goddess falling to earth and the chaos that it caused, as we've seen with the storm and the flood sent by the angry gods. As a complement to this, Storm's End also gives us the rising fist symbolism of the smoke, ash, and debris which would have risen in a huge column from the impact locations. The King's Pyre Tower symbol, if you will. We haven't focused on the rising smoke and ash symbol as much as some others, but it is of course very important because that's the actual thing that blotted out the sun and caused the long night. We saw it with the mountain's smoking fist rising up to break the face of the sun figure over in Martell, and we've seen more straightforward columns of smoke rising from places where meteor impacts are symbolized. So here is the description of Storm's End, from the chapter where Cat inner monologues the story of Dern and Elenai. Of towers there was but one, a colossal drum tower, windowless where it faced the sea, so large that it was granary and barracks and feast hall and lords dwelling all in one, crowned by massive battlements that made it look from afar like a spiked fist atop an upthrust arm. Later in A Clash of Kings, right before Renly is murdered, we see Renly's soldiers described as dead trees and shadow knights, and check out the description of Storm's End. The long ranks of man and horse were armoured in darkness, as black as if the smith had hammered night itself into steel. There were banners to her right, banners to her left, and rank on rank of banners before her, but in the pre-dawn gloom, neither colours nor sigils could be discerned. A grey army, Catelyn thought, grey men on grey horses beneath grey banners, as they sat their horses waiting, Renly's shadow knights pointed their lances upward. So she rode through a forest of tall naked trees, bereft of leaves and life. Where Storm's End stood was only a deeper darkness, a wall of black through which no stars could shine. These dead tree shadow knights armored in darkness used to be the knights of summer. But when their horned lord Renly dies, they transform with him, it seems. After this, they're possessed by another dead horned lord figure, Stannis, as the troops go over to Stannis's side in the aftermath of Renly's death. Stannis's new army is like night itself, hammered into steel by a divine smith. This is Lightbringer, the black weapon of Azor High that we're talking about, surely. And right on cue, there's Storm's End, the rising fist of a castle, now become a deeper darkness through which no stars could shine. It's the cloud of darkness rising from the meteor impacts, the meteors which are, again, like night itself, hammered into steel. This is the place where Durin is remembered as having pulled down the moon goddess, an event which caused not only storms and floods, but also a deeper darkness through which no stars could shine, also known as the long night. The next morning, it says that The night fires had burned low. And as the east began to lighten, the immense mass of Storm's End emerged like a dream of stone. Referring to Storm's End as a dream of stone may be a hint about it being built by dreamers, as in Greenseers. That seems to be the case, 
as Durin's horns and moon goddess thievery already identify him as a green seer and a horned lord. Alright, well, that'll do it for our introduction to the Storm Kings and their Horned Lord symbolism, and for our introduction to Moon Maidens as mermaids, a topic that we'll return to when we focus on Moon Goddesses more specifically. You can see that the Storm King archetype is a part of the Naughty Greenseer archetype, and this too is a subject that we'll return to when we discuss Mr. I Am the Storm Urin Crow's Eye, whom I like to call Creepy Pirate Odin on Bad Acid. Right now, we're going to switch over to discussing Yggdrasil and Odin and their influence on the Weirwoods and Greenseers, but that trail will lead us back to the idea of Azor Ahai as a Stormlord in a major way, and I needed to explain the Storm God mythology first to set all that up. So now, without further ado, let's go inside the magical white tree, Weirdrasil. Bearer of Thunder This section is sponsored by our newest Zodiac patron, Sir Cletus Ironwood Reborn of the Never Lazy Eye, wrestler of bulls and earthly avatar of Heavenly House Taurus. In Weirwood Compendium 2, A Burning Brandon, we popped the cork on the correlations between A Song of Ice and Fire and Odin and his magical tree, Yggdrasil. I say pop the cork because we've only just begun sipping on this shamanic brew that is Mimir brand sparkling well water. We'll be going back to this well often throughout the Weirwood Compendium because you really can't understand the context of the Weirwoods without talking about Yggdrasil and Odin. We started with the Nightfort scene and the idea of the moon representing the eye of Odin, plucked out to gain cosmic wisdom and then cast down into the well. Odin's one-eyed status is his most recognizable trait, so it was the logical place to begin. And it sort of just happened that way. It's also a very easy symbol to spot, and Martin has hidden one-eyed people, horses, mules, wolves, dogs, and even a one-eyed dragon, bonus points if you know the dragon, scattered about the story. Bloodraven is, of course, the primary manifestation of this idea, and really, unraveling the importance of Odin to A Song of Ice and Fire begins with the correlations between Beric and Bloodraven, which also happens to be one of the best symbolic pieces of evidence in support of my hypothesis that Azor High was a greenseer, because Beric's symbolism practically slaps us in the face with the idea of Azor High, the fiery undead greenseer. We've talked about Beric a few times, so we're familiar with the basics as an undead person resurrected through fire magic who lights a sword on fire with actual blood magic, Beric is a terrific Azor High reborn echo. He's from a black castle, Black Haven, just as Azor High was from Ashai, aka the largest city in the history of the world which also happens to be built completely from light drinking or the black stone, and just as other Azor High characters like John and Stannis are the lords of black castles. Beric even has red kissed by fire hair. Now that we've put out the Great Empire of the Dawn episode, I can point to the fact that Beric was set to marry a Dane before he died, Illyria Dane, as another potential Azor High parallel, as we have speculated that the Danes may be partially descended from the Great Empire of the Dawn people from which Azor High probably comes. Illyria Valyria? Hmm. Beric also has Edric Dane, the young lord of Starfall, as his squire, making Beric something of a father figure for Edric. And this could also be a potential echo of Azor High or his son marrying a native Westerosi woman to found House Dane. Oh, and by the way, Eldric Shadow Chaser is supposedly another name for Azor High, and a very Westerosi-sounding one at that. So, Eldric, Edric? 
I've always sort of thought about Eldrick Shadow Chaser as a good name for the last hero, Shadow Chaser and all, and I find it highly suspicious that the two houses most directly associated with the last hero, House Stark and House Dane, have variants of the name Eldrick. Yes, that's right. There's a King Edric Snowbeard Stark and an Elric Stark to go along with Edric Dane, the young lord of Starfall, and Ulric Dane, a previous Sword of the Morning. Highly suspicious, if you ask me. George has also given the name Edric Storm to one of Robert's bastards, a boy who was very nearly sacrificed for his king's blood in order to wake a dragon. In fact, all of Robert's true children exemplify Azor High Reborn and Horned Lord ideas. Edric Storm, Maya Stone, who says her father must have been a goat, aka a horned person, and whose hair is black as a raven's wing, and most of all, as we'll see later, Gendry. For this reason, I tend to think that the names Edric Storm and Edric Dane are clues about the offspring of Azor High, and therefore when I see Edric Dane squiring for a resurrected barrack, well, it looks like something of a family portrait to me. Alright, now besides his excellent Azor High impersonation, Barrack also gives us a fairly strong whiff of Greenseer and of Bloodraven. The one red-eye thing is kind of a red flag, if you know what I mean. And when we meet him, Barrack is in a cavern not unlike Bloodraven's, seated amongst the weirwood roots halfway up the wall. Both Barrack and Bloodraven are compared to being talking corpses or corpse lords, and both are tied to that burning Night's Watch scarecrow symbolism that we took a look at in the Green Zombies series. So, Barrack is like Azor High Reborn, and Barrack is like Bloodraven. And Bloodraven completes the triangle by sharing symbolism with Azor High and the Last Hero. Bloodraven is a dragon-blooded green seer. He commanded the Night's Watch. He disappeared into the north to fight the others, possibly and hopefully with a black sword, Dark Sister. And he loves to pull moon meteor symbols down into wells and privy shafts alike. We also saw all that copious sea dragon, weirwood serpent symbolism in Bloodraven's cave, a great tie to the Grey King and the idea of green seer dragons. Now, if the Grey King overlaps with Azor High in some sense, as I propose, we should also see Grey King symbolism with Beric. And indeed we do, though it's not quite as obvious as the flaming sword Azor Ahai thing. Beric is called the Lightning Lord, with the forked lightning sigil of House Dondarrion etched on his cloak. Calling an Azor High Reborn type the Lightning Lord makes perfect sense for all the same reasons that it makes sense to call Azor High Reborn a Storm King. The Thunderbolt was a moon meteor, and Azor High both called down and possessed the moon meteors. The Grey King took possession of fire through the Thunderbolt of the Storm God. In other words, the Grey King gained godlike or lordlike status through lightning, and this is paralleled again in the backstory of House Dondarrion. Their house was established when a messenger of the Storm King riding through the Dornish marches was saved by a fortuitous forked lightning bolt that struck two Dornishmen that were about to kill him, with the Storm King elevating him to a lordship for his service. A messenger of the Storm God is another way to describe lightning itself. It's a message sent from the Storm God. Accordingly, the Dondarians became the Lightning Lords, wearing the lightning on their sigil. Even better, this first Dondarian was in such dire straits because he fell from his horse and broke his sword, giving us the familiar broken sword motif shared by the last hero's frozen and broken sword, Ned's split sword, Sir Waymar's broken sword, Bran Stark the broken sword, and of course by Beric Dondarian himself, whose flaming sword is sheared in half by the hound's cold one. 
We saw the broken sword symbolism at the Iron Islands with the broken sword point of land on which Pike sits, which was the first place that we started getting clues about the sea dragon and the storm god's thunderbolt being a meteor sword. The symbol of the forked lightning suggests sword splitting by its very nature. If the thunderbolt is the comet or meteor, it's branching and splitting. The name Dondarrion suggests thunder too. Some of you may know that the original name of Santa's reindeer Donner was Dundar, and that both words mean thunder, with Donner being the German word and Dundar being the Dutch. Blitzen is the German word for lightning, and the Dutch version is Blixem, so two of Santa's reindeer were named thunder and lightning. This is a reflection of the tie between horned animals and divine thunder, which we see here and there in world mythology, and which Martin is drawing upon. Anyway, the name Dondarian implies thunder, and thus the name Barak Dondarian could be translated as Bearer of Thunder, which is just another way of saying the Lightning Lord. It's also kind of like naming Barak after a flying reindeer, and thus a horned lord, or maybe a flying horned lord. We're going to talk about flying a great deal pretty soon here, so stick a pin in that. Barak's Weirwood Throne is of course a parallel to the Grey King's hypothetical Weirwood Throne, which was positioned inside of the petrified weirwood beams known as Naga's Ribs. Recall all the weirwood cage symbolism applied to Bran. He rides in a wicker cage, ends up in a cage of weirwood roots, and his frail cage of shattered ribs was seemingly used to symbolize Naga's ribs as a rib cage that a green seer lives inside. And now check out this quote from A Storm of Swords when Lord Beric takes off his breastplate. Lord Beric's ribs were outlined starkly beneath his skin. A puckered crater scarred his breast just above the left nipple, and when he turned around, Arya saw a matching scar on his back. The lance went through him. There's a crater in his ribs where Sir Gregor's lance, the giant's lance in other words, went through him. That's a nice clue about a moon meteor impact taking place at the Iron Islands, where we find Naga's ribs and tales of fire falling from the sky. And did you catch that clue about Azorahai being a Stark? Beric's ribs were outlined starkly beneath his skin. It's neither here nor there, perhaps, but we already think there is some crossover between Azorahai people and House Stark anyway, so I thought I'd mention it. At the least, calling Beric's ribs Stark may be serving to tie Beric's rib cage to Bran Stark's rib cage, with both of them serving as symbols for the weirwood cages that they ultimately end up sitting in. The whole point of the metaphor of the weirwoods as a wicker cage to be set on fire by the lightning bolt is that the green seer, in one sense, is the lightning bolt. Even though the weirwood net transfers the fire of the gods to man when it is set on fire, the thing that sets it on fire is the thunderbolt, and that is the falling dragon meteor, the burning brand sometimes known as Azor High Reborn. Brand symbolizes that falling fire brand, and he enters a variety of wooden cages. I believe that the weirwood net is essentially not activated, or set on fire if you will, until a face is carved on it and a green seer's consciousness enters it. One hypothesis that we've put forward about the Grey King is that he was a dragon person come from a shy by way of the sea, and that he essentially landed at Old Wick and then became the beating, fiery heart inside the weirwood cage of Naga's ribs. The crater in the ribs symbolism of Beric's chest shows us something very similar, an impact to the ribs taken from the lance of Sir Gregor the Moon Mountain that rides, who we already know can play the role of a falling moon meteor such as sets fire to the tree. 
We'll talk more about the act of entering the Weirwood Net in the next episode, and for now it's a good way to show that Beric is expressing the symbolism of the Grey King and the Sea Dragon with his ribcage. Plus, the word crater always makes me happy. Finally, Beric's semi-corpse status is another thing that he may share with the Grey King and his Grey Flesh. That's hardly unique, but it is a defining element of the Grey King, being a part of his name and all. Unfortunately, Beric doesn't seem to be any good at making long ships or weaving nets, and he doesn't marry a mermaid, although we did mention that Asharadane's leap from the tower into the sea is symbolic of the moon drowning and becoming a drowned goddess or mermaid, and Ashar was of course the sister of Beric's betrothed, Illyria Valyria, which is what we're calling her now. Sounds like a new hit show. Somebody call HBO. Primarily, the parallels between Beric and the Grey King revolve around the Green Seer imagery, the lightning and sea dragon symbolism, and the death-undeath symbolism. But those are the things that we're primarily concerned with for the moment. So that's Beric. He nicely ties together the important symbolism of Azor Ahai, Blood Raven, and the Grey King. More than anything, he's undead Azor Ahai sitting in a weirwood cave, a terrific clue that Azor Ahai was a green seer, and a fiery undead one, it would seem. But let's go back to that whole missing eye thing which Beric and Blood Raven share, because, as we've mentioned, magicians with missing eyes are all more or less cast in the image of Odin to some extent. If we want to understand why Martin is showing us all of these one-eyed sorcerers, then we must dig further into Odin himself. I've been sort of leading up to what you're about to hear for a couple of episodes now, so it's a big moment. Shout out to Blue Tiger. A Grey Gallows Horse This section is brought to you by our newest priest of the Church of Starry Wisdom, Patchface of Motley Wisdom, the Sanguine, also known as He Who Has Come Out of Ashai. Odin is one of the most important gods of Germanic folklore and of Norse folklore, which is something of an offshoot of Germanic folklore. He goes by many names all over Europe. In Old English, it's Woden. In Old Saxon, it's Wodan. In Old High German, he's Wotan. Not Wu-Tang, Wotan. These words translate to seer or prophet, and words with the same phonetic root translate to madness, frantic, furious, possessed, etc. Think of the madness of shamanic ecstasy, and you can see how all these ideas relate. Shamans, of course, are well known for wearing animal pelts and reindeer and elk antlers on their heads, so you can see how this dovetails nicely with the horned nature god figure who is often associated with magic himself. Odin is many things and has many names, but above all, Odin is the god of magic, and many of his stories have him questing for increased magical knowledge. As with A Song of Ice and Fire, Norse myth places a heavy emphasis on the cost of obtaining magic or power, and like some others we know, Odin always pays his debts, usually in dramatic fashion, such as cutting out your own eye. You might remember from the Green Zombie series that Odin, or Woden, overlaps quite a bit with the family of horned nature gods. His shamanic madness is similar to the uncontrollable wild man of the woods, or to the wildness of Pan or Bacchus, and European versions of Woden place him as the leader of the Wild Hunt, the classic role of the horned nature death and resurrection god. Hearn the Hunter leads a kind of wild hunt, a procession of dead and or enthralled figures, which is sometimes even depicted as flying through the sky. This is the inspiration, or part of the inspiration, for Santa's sleigh and reindeer, actually. 
It's a celestial wild hunt. That's why another one of the reindeer's names is Comet, to go along with Donner and Blitzen. Ha! Two Santa mentions in one episode. I kid, but once again, we see the confluence of Horned Lord and Storm God mythology, as we see in the Durin Godsgrief myth. Odin is also the father of Thor, the official Norse Storm God, though Odin can be quite stormy too. And of course, Thor is a heavy influence on the Durandin and the Baratheons, Robert in particular. Robert also loves to hunt. In fact, he was out hunting when Bran had his fall from the tower, and out hunting when he was gutted by the tusk of the black devil boar, and out hunting every time Cersei was delivering one of Jaime's children, and thus giving him horns, as they say. The Wild Hunt gets a direct call-out in Beric's story, in the form of one of the members of the Brotherhood, a fellow called the Mad Huntsman. Again, think of madness and shamanic ecstasy. The Mad Huntsman is sent to Old Town with a dude named Greenbeard to buy supplies at one point, thus fulfilling the green man role of providing the bounty of the harvest, as you would expect from these two obvious green man figures. And Greenbeard in particular has some great scenes, which we'll be pulling from in future episodes. In other words, Odin lore already comes with a side of horned lords, which is part of the reason why Martin can so easily unite one-eyed people, green seers, and people who wear antler hats. Recall that in order to gain the knowledge of Mimir's well, Odin had to imbibe its waters after he had thrown his eye in there, for what it's worth. Imbibing a substance which expands your consciousness and gives you access to cosmic knowledge sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? The weirwood paste could easily be a stand-in for the psychedelic water of Mimir's well. Mimir's well is located in one of the underworld realms, usually depicted as being beneath the roots of Yggdrasil, just as Bloodraven's cave, where Bran eats the weirwood paste, is strewn through with weirwood roots and lies under a weirwood tree. There's also that black river down in the abyss in Bloodraven's cave, adding to the Mimir's well symbolism. As we saw last time, Bran himself went down the Nightfort well on the way to Bloodraven's cave to eat the paste of knowledge, a fairly on-the-nose journey into Norse mythology. Additionally, the first time Bran opened his third eye, as he refers to consciously skin-changing into summer, it took place while Bran was hiding in the crypts beneath Winterfell, so again, an underworld location. Odin is also well known for his animals. He has two ravens on his shoulder, Huggin and Munin, whose names mean thought and memory or mind, and two wolves, Jerry and Freki. Both words mean ravenous or the greedy one. As you can see, Martin has adapted these ideas to northern culture, as the two most common animals for skin changers to use are wolves and ravens. John, in particular, is working on a nice Odin Halloween costume, as he has one wolf and Mormont's raven, and that pesky scar over one eye. And of course, Bran, whose name means raven in Welsh, skin changes wolves and ravens both. Odin's ravens fly around the world and bring him information and speak in human language, so the parallels here are pretty striking. One thing Bran and John need for their Odin costume is a beard and a floppy hat, trademark Odin chic, but those are like the easiest things in the world to get at Party City on your way home from work, so hey, no biggie. Kidding aside, Odin does have a long beard and a hat, and we see that Bloodraven is certainly rocking the beard. A floppy hat probably would have seemed a little out of place, so I'm glad Martin didn't try to shoehorn that part in. Sam does have a floppy hat at one point, for what it's worth. Odin is closely tied to Yggdrasil, as you'll see, and there are other notable animals living in Yggdrasil, such as the squirrel Ratatosker, who runs up and down the tree. That has to remind us of the children of the forest, who are called the Squirrel People by the giants, 
and who live both below the trees in caves and previously in the canopies of the forest in what were called tree towns, as we hear from Old Nan in A Game of Thrones. They lived in the depths of the wood, in caves and crannogs, and secret tree towns. The idea of the squirrel being able to transit between the realms of Yggdrasil places it in the role of a walker between the worlds, a navigator who can carry communication between the realms. The children play something of this role for humans, acting as a sort of usher or facilitator for Bran and presumably Bloodraven and many others, to gain access to the various realms of the cosmos. We saw a humorous version of this on The Great Ranging when the Night's Watch ranger named Bedwick, who is very short and is facetiously called Giant, climbs up and down a weirwood tree like a squirrel to gather information. As it happens, there are also four stags, hearts actually, meaning male red deer, that hang around Yggdrasil. And I apologize ahead of time for my pronunciation. I really have no idea where you go to find out how to pronounce very old Norse words, but the first one is Dane, D-A-I-N-N, which means the dead one. The second one is Dvalin, D-V-A-L-I-N-N, the unconscious one. The third one is Dunier, D-U-N-E-Y-R-R, which means thundering in the ear. And Durapror, I think, D-U-R-A-P-R-O-R, which means thriving slumber, which is thought to be a reference to snoring. There's not really a lot said about these stags, other than that they consume the upper leaves of Yggdrasil, but the presence of stags is nonetheless pretty cool, and those names are interesting. One has a name that looks and sounds like Dane, the dead one, wouldn't you know it, like a dead star, and another one sounds a bit like Durin, as in Durin God's Grief. A thundering stag has our attention too, of course, but nobody really understands what these stags by Yggdrasil are about, so I don't really want to make too much of it. It's just kind of cool to see the stags there by the tree. Now, the most important correlation between Odin and Green Seers is not the ravens, not the wolves, squirrels, or stags, nor even the water of Mimir's well, though that's getting closer. The main thing is Odin's relationship to his tree, Yggdrasil. I say his tree because one translation of Yggdrasil is Odin's horse, Yg being one of the many names of Odin, and Drasil meaning horse, among other things. You'll recall the Grey King legend of carving the first longships from the hard pale wood of Ig, a demon tree who fed on human flesh. And of course that's spelled Y-G-G, just the right way. And then in A Dance with Dragons, one of Stannis' soldiers calls the weirwoods demon trees. So taken together, it shows us that Martin wants us to associate the weirwoods with Yggdrasil. And with demons, apparently. As for the horsey end of Yggdrasil's translation as Odin's horse... That's where we enter the realm of metaphor. Yggdrasil is a type of horse that Odin rides, but it's not a horse horse. It's actually a gallows tree, which is called the horse of the hanged. The idea is that the hanged man rides the gallows tree by being hanged upon it. That's right. Odin rides his gallows horse, Yggdrasil, by being hanged upon the tree. As with the story of Odin sacrificing his eye to gain knowledge, he's again sacrificing his physical self to gain something divine. Last time, he was after sacred knowledge, and this time, it's the ability to see the runes. And yes, this is the type of thing which is the topic of black metal bands from Sweden. Odin wasn't merely hanged with a noose on Yggdrasil. He was actually pierced by his own blade, and thereby sort of impaled on the tree for nine days, all in order to show himself worthy of obtaining the fire of the gods by means of self-sacrifice just as he did with the lost eye. 
After hanging from the tree, suspended between life and death for nine days, Odin at last spies the runes, which can be seen in the depths of the bottomless well of Erd from which Yggdrasil grows. Now this is a different magical well than Mimir's well, mind you, and in a different part of the underworld. The runes themselves are actually a magical system of great power, and once they reveal themselves to Odin, he becomes one of the most powerful beings in the universe, capable of altering fates and destinies. As a side note, they seem to have very good well water in Iceland. Now, Yggdrasil isn't just Odin's horse, it was regarded as a part of Odin, very like the way a green seer and his tree or a skin changer and his animal are one. Thus, Odin says that he sacrificed himself to himself by hanging himself on his own tree. Just as with his giving up of one physical eye to open his third eye, here he is again speaking of sacrificing his lower self to his higher self by being willing to suffer physically to gain expanded consciousness and knowledge of the cosmos. We got a healthy dose of this idea in the Brandtastic episode that was Weirwood Compendium 2, so I know you guys and gals know what I'm talking about. The Speech of the High One I know I hung on that windy tree, swung there for nine long nights, wounded by my own blade, bloodied for Odin, myself an offering to myself, bound to the tree that no man knows whither the roots of it run. None gave me bread, none gave me drink. Down to the deepest depths I peered until I spied the runes. With a roaring cry, I seized them up. Then, dizzy and fainting, I fell. Well-being I won, and wisdom too. I grew and took joy in my growth. From a word to a word, I was led to a word. From a deed to another deed. The Poetic Edda. It's easy to see how this mythology has influenced the green seer weirwood relationship. Bloodraven and the other singers enthroned in the cave are pinioned through by the weirwood roots, for all intents and purposes hung on the tree. Only they're in the underworld part of the tree, instead of hanging from its branches or being tied to its trunk. Odin is pinioned to the tree by a spear as well as tied, and Bloodraven is actually pierced through by the snake-like weirwood roots as well as wrapped up in them. As a matter of fact, the idea of a snake or dragon in the roots of Yggdrasil is part of the Yggdrasil mythology. I think you're going to like this. Check this out. Underneath Yggdrasil, there is a snake dragon called Nidhogg, or at least that's my mispronunciation of the anglicized version of the Norse name Nidhogger. Nidhogger. Something like that. This snake dragon gnaws at one of the roots of Yggdrasil and rules over a place called Nastrond where the souls of the damned who have committed the most egregious sins in Norse society, murder, adultery, and oath-breaking, go to be tortured to pay for their crimes. In some cases, the dragon is perceived as being trapped by the roots, although it does, of course, escape at Ragnarok, the great last battle of Norse myth, to cause all kinds of trouble. A dragon caught up in the roots of Yggdrasil really, really makes us think of Bloodraven, a dragon-blooded person who is literally trapped in the roots of the weirwood. He doesn't gnaw on the roots, presumably, but he does eat the weirwood paste. 
We quoted the scene from Bloodraven's cave last time. You'll recall that the weirwood roots that have grown over, around, and through Bloodraven are described as coiling like white wooden serpents, a line which also evokes the weirwood ribcage of the sea dragon. As Bran is first entering the caves in A Dance with Dragons, we also get this paragraph. The way the shadows shifted made it seem as if the walls were moving too. Bran saw great white snakes slithering in and out of the earth around him, and his heart thumped in fear. He wondered if they had blundered into a nest of milk snakes or giant grave worms. Soft and pale and squishy, grave worms have teeth. You can see that the idea of a biting snake living amongst the roots of the magical tree is strongly depicted here, following up on the idea of Bloodraven himself as a dragon living amongst the roots. Also emphasized in this last quote via the Grave Worms reference is the connection to a Chthonic underworld realm, the realm of the dead, and of course Bloodraven's cave itself is full of skulls and bones to continue the symbolism. Also noteworthy is the fact that Snorri Sturluson, author and stenographer of the Prose Edda and most of the other main Norse sagas, uses Nidhogg, the name of the snake, as a word for sword. That means that this dragon of the underworld is also associated with swords, which is very convenient for Martin's purposes. We can see what Martin has done. He has taken Odin's hanging on the world tree Yggdrasil and moved it downstairs, combining it with the idea of the dragon amongst the roots. Thus emerges the picture of a dragon-blooded green seer hung and pinioned on the tree, but beneath it, in the snake-like roots. He sacrificed his physical self to look out the eyes of a god. And though his body may be trapped beneath, the tree does allow Blood Raven to gain magical awareness of time and space, just as Yggdrasil does for Odin. Martin has also realized the dragon-beneath-Yggdrasil idea in the form of Azor High going into the Weirwood Net, becoming a green seer hanged on the tree roots. When I said before that the lightning setting the tree on fire represents Azor High the dragon going into the Weirwood Net, this is what I was talking about. Bloodraven represents the dragon that landed on the tree, that set it on fire, and entered it by sacrificing himself to it, thereby gaining access to the fire of the gods. Bloodraven and Azor High are also the ones who called down the moon meteor, so if one were to try to imagine it as a sequence, it could be that Azor High found a way to break the moon, and then was able to use the magic power of the fallen meteorites to somehow facilitate his entrance into the Weirwood Net. One imagines human sacrifice and blood magic might have been involved. We're only just beginning to piece this part together, so there's no rush to form conclusions. We've still got several episodes to go. I just don't want to speak entirely in metaphor here. There is a real thing involving the moon meteors and the Weirwood Net, and more importantly, between Azor High and the Weirwoods. Although Odin is not technically hanged on the tree with a noose, the idea of his death transformation on Yggdrasil being thought of as riding the gallows tree horse does create a potential metaphor out of a person being hanged, which can now be used to imply transcendence, magical awakening, and greenseer status through death. Spoiler alert, it has been used extensively to imply transcendence, magical awakening, and greenseer status through death in A Song of Ice and Fire. This fits very well with the themes Martin is working regarding death and resurrection as a means for gaining power. Rising harder and stronger, I believe it's called. Again, we'll draw from the well of Barak's symbolism to demonstrate. Not only does Barak have the one eye wound of Odin, Barak has also been hanged. And by the god's eye, no less. When Lem and Arya and company are seeking Thoros in a storm of swords, a maester in a small keep breaks the bad news to them. 
I fear you seek a ghost. We had a bird ages ago. The Lannisters caught Lord Beric near the God's Eye. He was hanged. Beric's weirwood throne and one-eyed status already remind us of Bloodraven, so it seems likely his hanging wound, a black ring around his neck, is intended to play into the Odin-Igdrasil mythology, as Bloodraven symbolism clearly does. Beric's death and resurrection transformation is very similar to Odin's because it can be said that a part of Odin dies on the tree, while the other part of him is reborn as a more powerful being. Looking again to Danny's rebirth in Drogo's funeral pyre and Jon's impending and long-awaited resurrection, we can see that the idea of a transformed and resurrected Azor Ahai who emerges more powerful is spelled out again and again. Resurrected Beric has gained the magical ability to light his sword on fire, and no longer needs to eat or sleep. Send him to the wall! It's also worth pointing out the obvious. Beric's Brotherhood is known for preferring the noose as their weapon of execution. In other words, the Lightning Lord, wearing his flaming sword and one-eyed symbolism, wanders through the woods with folks called Greenbeard and the Mad Huntsman, and one-eyed Jack Be Lucky, hanging people. Any knight can make a knight, and any hanged man can make a hanged man, it would seem. Finding these kinds of specific and detailed references to Odin and Yggdrasil in Beric's story is yet another confirmation that Azor Ahai is an Odin figure and a green seer. You have to admit, the first time you heard me say that Azor Ahai was a green seer, it sounded a little wacky, and you wondered if your old pal Lucifer Means Lightbringer had jumped from the wrong tall tower. Nope. Azor Ahai the green seer is spelled out again and again and again, as I hope I have shown by now. Guess what? There's more coming. Okay, so you remember how one of the islands in the broken arm of Dorne is called Bloodstone? Which I took as a clue about the hammer of the waters that fell there having something to do with the Bloodstone Emperor and the bleeding stars that he called down? About how Daemon Targaryen, rider of the red dragon Caraxes the Bloodworm, temporarily set up his royal seat on Bloodstone as a usurper? How could you forget it? I mentioned it at least once an episode. Well, at long last, I can tell you that the only other named island in that chain, formerly known as the Arm of Dorne, but smashed to smithereens, is called the Grey Gallows, so named because the Grey King is an aspect of Azor High who rode the Gallows Tree Horse, a green seer. The Grey King was the Bloodstone Emperor riding the Gallows Tree, you might say. We've even got a sunspear right there to pin the Bloodstone Emperor to the Gallows Tree. It's like a diagram. Ta-da! Time out for some public executions. This larger-than-average section is brought to you by our newest acolyte of the Church of Starry Wisdom, Sir Gribbons of the Godswood, the Antier, and by one of our original priestesses of Starry Wisdom, the Duchess of Tillymage, keeper of the Two-Headed Sphinx. We're by no means finished with Odin and Yggdrasil, but let's pause the Norse analysis and take a moment for a couple of hangings from A Song of Ice and Fire to illustrate the points that we've made so far. This will take us to the end of the podcast, and we'll pick up right where we left off with the next one. There is so much Odin stuff that is important to A Song of Ice and Fire that it became apparent that the best strategy was to break off one idea at a time and then show how it correlates to the books before moving on to the next thing. If we tried to lay out all the Odin and Yggdrasil ideas at once, we'd just be talking about Norse myth for three hours and hardly mentioning A Song of Ice and Fire. As always, 
The intent of our podcast is to explore these external myths which Martin seems to be incorporating to the extent that it furthers our understanding of A Song of Ice and Fire, and we do not and cannot hope to provide a comprehensive summation of these extensively developed and complex real-world mythologies. I hope that you will all be inspired to do further reading on your own to gain a better understanding of the source mythology, and I have to believe that that's part of Martin's intent in incorporating so much classic literature and folklore into his story. I'd love to just talk mythology for hours, but there are a lot of good podcasts that do that already, and I try very hard to keep everything that we talk about here tightly confined to the things which A Song of Ice and Fire specifically makes reference to. So with that said, let's get a rope and strang us up some grain sayers. There's a great chapter from A Feast for Crows that seems to be largely about hanging as a metaphor. It's a chapter we've quoted from before. It's the one where Brienne, Pod, Sir Hyle Hunt, and Septon Maribald, and his dog, Dog, are making their way back to the inn at the crossroads after returning from Cracklaw Point. And this is the one that ends with Brienne having her fateful encounter with Biter and the remnants of the Brave Companions. As they make their way to the inn, they come across a number of hanged men, the nasty fellows who raided, raped, and murdered at Saltpans, who have presumably been hanged by the Brotherhood without banners. Brienne is reflecting on the fact that, once a corpse is more than a few days old, it's very hard to tell one from another or to recognize anyone's features. She thinks to herself, On the gallows tree, all men are brothers. One is reminded of a certain theory about the original Night's Watch being undead greenseers, a brotherhood of dead men who ride the gallows tree weir drazel. As a matter of fact, the chapter opens with what seems to be a vivid declaration of its metaphorical theme, the gallows tree. And not just any old gallows tree, one struck by lightning. This is the first paragraph of the chapter. They came upon the first corpse a mile from the crossroads. He swung beneath the limb of a dead tree, whose blackened trunk still bore the scars of the lightning that had killed it. The carrion crows had been at work on his face, and wolves had feasted on his lower legs, where they dangled near the ground. Only bones and rags remained below his knees, along with one well-chewed shoe, half covered by mud and mould. Okay, this is quite a find. The hanged man on a tree symbolism of Odin and Yggdrasil crossed with the lightning-blasted tree of the Grey King myth. That's what you call a home run for symbolism. I think it's a clear message that the lightning-struck tree is indeed the A Song of Ice and Fire version of Odin's gallows tree. Now take a look at the hanged man riding the gallows. He's wearing rags, like the Scarecrow Night's Watch brothers, Cold Hands and Blood Raven, which is a reference to the burning Scarecrow King of Winter idea. The wolves have eaten his legs and the crows his face, and both of those seem like call-outs to the sacrifices that Bran has made to obtain the fire of the gods. Bran lost the use of his legs when he fell from the tower, and since we know that the crows go for the eyes first when eating someone's face, this seems like a reference to Bran's dream of the crows pecking out his eyes, and to the bad little boy who was struck down by lightning and had his eyes eaten out by crows. Basically, this is a pretty good portrait of Bran riding the gallows tree. The chapter continues with the party observing this first hanged man in more detail. What does he have in his mouth? asked Podrick. Brienne had to steel herself to look. His face was grey and green and ghastly, his mouth open and distended. Someone had shoved a jagged white rock between his teeth. A rock or... Salt, said Septon Meribold. 
The first thing to notice here is that the dead man riding the lightning-blasted gallows tree has gray and green skin, giving us the gray skin of the gray king and the green skin of green men. Green boys and graybeards, remember? And by the way, I think I forgot to mention this, but what if the sacred order of green men is really called that because they are undead green seers or skin changers, with their green skin being the green skin of corpses instead of some kind of elf-like creature? Again, reanimated corpses are good for very long and repetitive guard duty. Getting back to the gray and green hanged man in this scene, the salt rock in the mouth has a clear purpose in terms of the main plot. These are the men who raided salt pans, and the salt signifies this. It surely has symbolic meaning too, although we have several choices which could work. It may be part of a smoke and salt Azor Ahai rebirth thing, because these men burned salt pans, burning the entire town except for the stone keep which would not catch on fire. As we'll see momentarily, salt pans appears to be an analog for the moon which was burnt, and these men who burned it have a piece of salt in their mouth, almost as if they had all taken a bite out of the moon. Or perhaps it's meant to make us think of someone eating white weirwood paste, as a green seer must do to mount the gallows tree. It also makes for another potential reference to the Ironborn and the Grey King, because they think the salt is a rock for a moment, and the Ironborn for a long time had a salt king and a rock king on each island. The second hanged man that they come to has been torn down by predators, and the interesting thing to note is that his helmed head has rolled into the bushes, only to be recovered by Maribald's dog, and it turns out to contain a skull along with worms and beetles. Sir Heil offers the cracked helm to Pod, but he objects on account of it being wormy, besides the fact that it is too big. Heil says, hey, he'll grow into it. So what we might be talking about here is a hanged man who has worms growing through his skull and who lives under the bushes. And again, this reminds us of Blood Raven and the grave worm weirwood roots that grow through his skull. Even better, the helm bears a Lannister lion upon its crest, but the lion, like the corpse, has lost its head. A decapitated lion is a pretty good way to depict the death of the sun during the long night, and a good way to depict the death transformation of Solar King Azor High into a Dark Solar King. After a remark about how the noose is Lord Beric's preferred method of execution, and how Lord Beric might well be nearby, there are some very suggestive lines from Sir Hyle Hunt regarding the hanged men that they've been seeing. Take a look and see what you think we can learn about the men who ride the gallows tree. Dog barked, and Septim Murabold glanced about and frowned. Shall we keep a brisker pace? The sun will soon be setting, and corpses make poor company by night. These were dark and dangerous men alive. I doubt that death will have improved them. There we disagree, said Sir Hyle. These are just the sort of fellows who are most improved by death. All the same, he put his heels into his horse and they moved a little faster. We were just talking about the idea of people being reborn harder and stronger, awakening transformed with new knowledge and abilities after a death and rebirth experience, and they were just talking about how Beric might be close by. Beric happens to be a hanged man, who was improved by death, however, and I think the message here is that Azor High was a dark and dangerous man when living, and that he and his brotherhood of the gallows tree may well have been improved by death, after the sun set for the long night. Maribald's line about corpses making poor company at night is also rather suggestive of the hanged men coming to life at night. When they reach the inn later in the chapter and balk at the price of rooms, 
The girl at the door says she'll have silver stags, or else you can sleep in the woods with the dead men. Those dead men were the hanged ones, so now they're sleeping and dreaming in the woods, as in inside the wood. That is, of course, how you mount the gallows tree that is the weirwood net, by dreaming, by joining the brotherhood of the gallows tree and going into the wood. Now, I mentioned that the raid on salt pans by these hanged men might be symbolizing the destruction of the second moon, which would firm up their connection to Azor High, and here's what I mean. Salt pans is a white city set on fire, like a moon which starts out white but is burned by wicked folk. When Brienne and company stopped there, they found only death and desolation, a corpse of a town where the air still smelled of smoke. The supposed leader of the raid at Saltpans was the Hound, although it was really Rorge wearing the Hound's helm, and the Hound is a burned Moon Meteor Hellhound version of Azor High Reborn. The people in the Riverlands start calling him the Mad Dog of Saltpans, while a knight reporting to Cersei blames the sack on Clegane and his Mad Dogs, and someone else says that Saltpans was the work of some fell beast in human skin. Rorge as the Hound supposedly killed a dozen men at Saltpans, naturally, and the Brotherhood has put out word that it would like to make him a hanged man in return. The Elder Brother tells a particularly horrific tale of a woman at Saltpans who was raped a dozen times and whose breasts had been eaten as if by a beast. I didn't really want to include that, but the breast is the place where Nissanissa was stabbed with Lightbringer, and the ravenous beast language here seems to refer to the dragon comet that destroyed the moon. And all of this makes the raid on salt pans a metaphor for the collision of the comet and the moon, and makes the perpetrators hanged on these trees, in the Brienne chapter, symbolic of Azor High's henchmen, the beasts in human skin. So now let's take a look at the Crossroads Inn itself, because it's a very important symbol. The name implies the inn as a crossing over point to the realm of the dead, and that's one of the symbolic roles that the Weirwoods often play, both in the form of death-associated Weirwood doors like the Black Gate below the Night Fort, the Moon Door in the Eyrie, and the Weirwood and Ebony Doors of the House in Black and White, as well as the general concept of a Greenseer transcending death through wetting the trees. There's a reason why I'm comparing the Inn to a Weirwood, and that would be that the Inn is symbolizing a gallows tree, and thus a Weirwood. Septon Maribald, take it away. The small folk call it the Crossroads Inn. Elder brother told me that two of Masha Heddle's nieces have opened it to trade once again. He raised his staff. If the gods are good, that smoke rising beyond the hanged men will be from its chimneys. They could call the place the Gallows Inn, Sahail said. So, two clues here. One, it's dubbed the Gallows Inn because it's the place where everyone gets hanged and it even has a gibbet right in the front yard. It's the crossing over point. It even used to be built on the River Trident before the course of the river shifted, and this conjures to mind the River Styx and the general mythological notion of crossing a river being used to symbolize death. Second clue about the inn being a weirwood symbol is the tricky wording from Maribald. If the gods are good, that smoke rising beyond the hanged men will be from its chimneys. In other words, the smoke rises from behind the hanged men, as if their gallows trees were burning. The gallows tree and the lightning-blasted burning tree are both symbols of weirwoods, and since we saw those two paired together at the opening of the chapter with the lightning-blasted gallows tree, I'm inclined to see this as a reinforcement of the same idea. 
I just mentioned that the girl at the door of the inn asks for silver stags to let them in. It's almost as if she is demanding a sacrifice of stags to let them enter. This makes a ton of sense if the inn is a weirwood symbol, and if entering is akin to dying, to being hung on the tree. The girl's name is Willow, which makes her a tree woman, and Brienne herself will be hanged on a willow tree later in the book. It's also worth noting that the inn is now entirely populated with children. Brienne thinks that it could also be called the Orphan Inn. If this inn is a weirwood symbol, then those would seem to be a nod to the children of the forest who live above and below the weirwood trees. Picking up where we left off with a line about the Gallows Inn, we get a good description of the inn itself. Just a boring old daub and waddle affair, nothing particularly remarkable about his description. Oh wait, this is a song of ice and fire. By any name, the inn was large, rising three stories above the muddy roads, its walls and turrets and chimneys made of fine white stone that glimmered pale and ghostly against the grey sky. Its south wing had been built upon heavy wooden pilings above a cracked and sunken expanse of weeds and dead brown grass. A thatch roof stable and a bell tower were attached to the north side. The whole sprawl was surrounded by a low wall of broken white stones overgrown by moss. Yes, well, it's made of ghostly white stone. That sounds innocuous, right? Hmm, not likely. Rather, it makes us think of ghosts trapped in pale white weirwoods and dead weirwoods turning to pale stone. It also reminds us of the moon, and if you think about it, we've seen weirwood and moon symbolism together a few times. More about that in the next episode. One of my favorite discoveries about the Crossroads Inn is that George has apparently made it into a larger-than-life fishing weir. As the company is approaching the inn, Septon Maribald is telling stories about the inn's origin, and he mentions that it was for a time called the River Inn. In those days, the trident flowed beneath its back door, and half its rooms were built out over the water. Guests could throw a line out their window and catch trout, it said. There was a ferry landing here as well, so travellers could cross to Lord Arroway's town and White Walls. I thought this was really terrific. We've been talking about the fishing weir, fish garth thing for a while, and that's not just our show, it's an idea that's been floating around in the fandom. In any case, before the river changed its course, the part of the inn built out over the water was functioning as a fishing weir, being a wooden structure built out over a river which can be used to catch fish. I think this is simply a clever way of telling us that the inn is representing the weirwoods. The inn is a fishing weir, it's a gallows inn with gallows trees, it demands a sacrifice of stags for entrance. It glimmers ghostly white. It sits at the crossroads and used to have a ferry to bring you across the river. It's inhabited by children. Okay, hold on. There's another layer to this fishing weir thing. We have to put this chapter on pause for just a second and take a very short journey in distance and time over to Jamie's chapters at River Run in A Feast for Crows, which take place at about the same time as Brienne's chapter. Okay, so the Gallows Inn is a weir that catches trout. How about an actual gallows that catches trout? The boom across the river and the three great camps of the besieging army were just as his cousin had described. Sir Ryman Frey's encampment north of the Tumblestone was the largest and the most disorderly. A great grey gallows loomed above the tents, as tall as any trebuchet. On it stood a solitary figure with a rope around his neck, Edmure Tully. Jamie felt a stab of pity. 
to keep him standing there day after day, with that noose around his neck. Better to have his head off and be done with it. A great grey gallows has caught itself a fine fat trout. We don't have time to go into all the Tully symbolism, but we have mentioned the symbolic ice and fire duality of having red kissed by fire hair and deep blue eyes, and their sigil too divides red and blue as a background for their silver fish. For now, let's just observe that Martin has drawn another link between the gallows tree symbol and the fishing weir symbol. We just saw a gallows in that is a weir, and now we have a great gray gallows that catches fish. The gray gallows term is used again in the next Jamie chapter, too, so it seems like an intentional reference to gray gallows island on the stepstones, and thus to the bloodstone emperor and the greater concept of Azor High riding the gallows and being caught in the weirwood net. A couple of other clues lurk in this passage. Edmure is made to stand there with a noose around his neck day after day, never knowing when he might die. That reminds us a bit of Odin hanging on the gallows tree, balanced on the precipice between life and death for nine days. And finally, what was all that in the beginning of the paragraph about a boom across the river? It's explained a bit earlier in the chapter, and this is Sir Stafford Lannister speaking to Jamie. Mine own camp is between the rivers, facing the moat and river on's main gates. We've thrown a boom across the Red Fork, downstream of the castle. Manfred, you and Reynard Rutiger have charge of its defence, so no one can escape by boat. I gave them nets as well to fish. It helps keep us fed. All right, so not only did they build a boom across the river, a wooden structure to trap anyone trying to flee the castle, they also fish from it. Just to make it extra clear, one of the men in charge of the weir is named after a tree, the yew tree. House yew has an interesting sigil as well, it's a curved white hourglass shape on a red background with a golden longbow in the center, you being a popular wood for longbows. But the white hourglass shape looks a lot like a white tree on a red field. Now, I'm not sure if this is intended by any means, but take a look and see what you think. If you're going to put a tree person in charge of manning the weir, you might as well hide weirwood symbolism in his sigil, so maybe it is intentional. The name Manfred means strength and peace or hero's peace for what it's worth. And I think it's easy to see how that might relate as well. The other fellow, Sir Rutiger, has a name which is a variation of the German Rudiger, the equivalent to the English name Roger, and the meaning comes from Old High German, meaning fame and spear. We've seen the spear holding 79 sentinels at the wall used as symbols for undead green men who have become tree people. And indeed, in the Brienne chapter, they refer to the gallows that they see on the road as grisly sentinels and sentinel trees are often described as gray and green, I might add. And perhaps it goes without saying, but Sir Rudiger's name sounds like the word root, leaving us with the idea of a person who's taking root in the middle of the weir. Most of all, Odin is impaled on his gallows tree with a spear. Gray Gallows Island, Bloodstone Island, and Sunspear, remember? So what we have here with Sir Rudiger and Sir Yu is a tree person and a famous spear person manning the weir and fishing from it just downstream of Edmure, the fish caught on the great gray gallows. Now, in his report, Sir Davin also informs Jamie that the men fishing from the boom will keep the army from starving, but that many of his foragers that they send out to look for food are found ripening under trees with ropes around their necks. Jamie's scout, Sir Adam Marbrand, whose sigil is a burning tree on a field of smoke gray, came across some of these hanged men on the way to River Run, 
hanging black-faced beneath a crabapple tree. They had been stripped naked, they had slipped their skin, in other words, and they all had crabapples shoved in their mouth, like suckling pigs. To me, this seems like a nod to the Adam and Eve story, essentially combining the taking a bite of the apple symbolism with Odin's hanging on the tree. And then Sir Adam Marbrand walks up with all of his burning tree symbolism, just so he can be like, Hey, what do we have here? Looks like a collection of death transcendence metaphors. Mind if I join? And of course, this whole story is relayed to Jamie as they discuss the weir that they've built over the river, just downstream from the great, great gallows. So the gang's all here, in other words. Now, there's a great observation about Bran to insert here as well that comes from my good friend, Ravenous Reader, the poetess, and that is that Bran, being a Tully who lost the use of his legs, is symbolically a merman. Merman! Think about it. His legs don't work, and he's a Tully, so he really is like a merman. Thus, we can see another layer to the fishing weir metaphor, and another layer to Bran's symbolism. In fact, there's a really good reason why we keep seeing this intermingling of fishy ideas and greenseer ideas, but it's a very big topic on its own, and we'll have to wait a couple of episodes. At the very least, we already know that Bran is a fish in the sense that he's caught in the weir, which makes a nice parallel to his uncle on the Grey Gallows here. His other uncle, Brendan Blackfish Tully, actually slips through the Lannister boom, which could have implications for the idea of someone escaping out of the weirwood net. Yet another topic for another day. Returning to the Gallows Inn and the Brienne chapter, we left off where Maribold was telling stories about the inn and how it used to be built over the trident. That's when Maribald gives us the story of the clanking dragon, which suddenly means a lot more than it ever did before. Later, it passed to a crippled knight named Long John Heddle, who took up ironworking when he grew too old to fight. He forged a new sign for the yard, a three-headed dragon of black iron, that he hung from a wooden post. The beast was so big it had to be made in a dozen pieces, joined with rope and wire. When the wind blew, it would clank and clatter, so the inn became known far and wide as the Clanking Dragon. It's a freshly forged iron dragon, hung from a wooden post. A black dragon hung on a kind of gallows, in other words, and it's even making noise in the wind, like a weirwood tree. Long John Heddle, the crippled smith, is a good example of how much symbolism Martin can cram into a name and a three-sentence story. Long John obviously suggests Long John Silver, a famous pirate with a wooden leg, and the crippled smith status suggests Hephaestus, the crippled smith of the Greek gods, who made more or less every famous weapon of power in Greek mythology. So, interpreting the symbolism, the man who created and hung the black iron dragon was a magical pirate smith, who became crippled. That sounds an awful lot like Azor High as the Grey King, a pirate from Ashai who knows how to smith magical black swords from sea dragon meteorite ore, and who was in all likelihood hung on the tree himself. Now eventually the sign was cut down after the Blackfires took the black dragon as their sigil, and then it was thrown into the river to give us the sea dragon imagery. Just as we suggest that some amount of sea dragon meteorite may have been recovered somehow, to make those black swords and the lovely oily black squid throne known as the sea stone chair, we see that one of the heads of the clanking dragon and six pieces in total have washed up on the quiet isle. Also notable is the fact that the dragon is made from a dozen pieces. Is the plus one the entire dragon, or is it the smith? This may or may not be intended as last hero math, 
but it is definitely a black dragon hung on a kind of gallows at a place called the Gallows Inn, which appears to be symbolizing a weirwood. Next, we need to talk about Gendry. At the end of this chapter comes the famous scene with Brienne battling Rorge, who has that hound's helm, and Biter, who has Biter's big ugly face. I've quoted from that scene before, with the main thing I want to remind you of here being the clever wording, when Gendry walks out to see why Brienne is raising the alarm, and one line ends with, his hammer in hand. And then the next one begins with, lightning cracked to the south as riders swung down off their horses. It's a clever way to tie the hammer to the lightning, and to Gendry. It seems he's inherited his father Robert Baratheon's Thor lightning hammer symbolism, and now that we've covered the Horned Lord stuff, I can point out that Gendry wears a horned bull's helm, in a kind of unintentional imitation of Robert's stag helm. It's also a symbolic call-out to Baal, the bull-headed fertility god, who may be the oldest corn king in collective human memory. Now when they approach the inn, they hear Gendry hammering away at his forge, and we get this. Even before they reached the gate, Brienne heard the sound, a hammering, faint but steady. It had a steely ring. A forge, Sahail said. Either they have themselves a smith, or the old innkeep's ghost is making another iron dragon. That ghost smith is Gendry. And there's more hammering when Brienne lays eyes on Gendry for the first time just a moment later. And again, he's called a ghost. Thieves, said a boy's voice from the stables. Robbers! Brienne turned and saw a ghost. Renly, no hammer blow to her heart could have felled her half so hard. My lord, she gasped. Lord? The boy pushed back his lock of black hair that had fallen across his eyes. I'm just a smith. Oh yes, he's just a smith. A ghost smith, horned lord, who hammers the heart of Brienne the Moon Maiden and likes to make iron dragons, who reminds Brienne of Renly, another ghostly green horn lord. He's from a long line of Storm Kings, and in one scene at Harrenhal, it says that his hammer was a part of his arm. Hat tip, ravenous reader. Interesting fellow, right? That last one was great. The hammer being a part of his arm conjures the image of the hammer of the waters falling on the arm of Dorne and becoming a part of it. A hammer that was really an iron dragon, made by a horned lord like Dern Godsgrief, Gendry's ancestor. Brienne even calls Gendry Lord to get the Horned Lord thing in full effect. We mentioned Brienne's basic symbolism earlier. She's another Moon Maiden turned Even Star, Morning Star character, although she's primarily expressing icy versions of those archetypes. She is Brienne the Blue from the Sapphire Isle, after all. So when she speaks of Gendry, the ghostly Horned Lord, felling her heart with a hammer blow, well, that's how you turn a Moon Maiden into a falling star. And it's a terrific way to make iron meteor dragons. The talk of Gendry making another iron dragon kind of sounds like foreshadowing of a future meteor event, or perhaps the new rebirth of a Zorahai reborn in the form of RLJ Zorahai and Danae Zorahai. One of my favorite tinfoils is that Tobo Mott taught the secret of reworking Valyrian steel to Gendry and that he's going to reforge Ned's sword, but I'm not holding my breath. The main thing is that the last Iron Dragon was hanged and then thrown into the river and would seem to correlate to the previous Long Night event, which inclines me to think that this talk of making another Iron Dragon is foreshadowing of the next dragon that needs to be hanged on the tree. Now this inn of many names used to be owned by the Heddles, 
And you may recall that Black Tom Heddle of the Mystery Night novella has a black demon helm. So calling Gendry the old innkeep's ghost effectively makes him a Heddle and blends the symbolism of Black Tom's demon mask with Gendry's bull helm. This gives us the sort of dark, demonic horned lord symbolism that we're seeing elsewhere with Azora High Reborn. This is Black Goat of Kohor, Baphomet type stuff we're talking about here. That's who's smithing the meteor dragons. Gendry's lightning hammer, horned helm, and Baratheon associations give us the Storm King symbolism to go along with that, and were he ever to be acknowledged as Robert's bastard and end up as the only potential heir to House Baratheon, well, then he'll be a full-fledged horned lord. The idea of Gendry as a fiery bull version of Azor High Reborn was also suggested in the scene where Yorin and Arya and the other Night's Watch recruits were besieged in that abandoned holdfast near the God's Eye. During the fight, the one where we saw the burning tree wearing the robes of living orange, it describes the fire shining so bright on his polished helm that the horns seemed to glow orange. In mythical astronomy terms, we see the sun turn into a pair of fiery bull's horns during a certain phase of the solar eclipse, when the moon is just above the center of the sun's disk. In world mythology, bulls can be both solar and lunar, and in this case, the fiery bull image is created only during an eclipse, when the sun and moon come into conjunction. Thus it makes sense to see Azor High Reborn as a fiery bull. He's only created during the eclipse, when the sun and moon come together. Now we'll actually come back to the Inn of the Crossroads at the end of the next episode for some more Gallows humor, but we aren't finished with Brienne. Because at the end of her last POV chapter in A Feast for Crows, Brienne herself is actually hanged. And there's a one-eyed man, Jack B. Lucky of the Brotherhood Without Banners, on hand to help execute her. The name Jack is probably a reference to Jack in the Green, adding an extra layer of green man symbolism here. Brienne thinks to herself, if this is another dream, it is time for me to awaken. If this is real, it is time to die. That's a very poetic way to tie dreaming and awakening to dying on the tree. Brienne is also struck by lightning a few times. We mentioned it a few episodes ago, so I'll just give you a quick recap in lieu of the full quotes. As the bloody mummers climb off their horses to attack Brienne, lightning flashes and makes their weapons gleam silvery blue, equating the weapons which will strike Brienne with lightning. As she battles Rorge, who's wearing the Hound's Helm, this is reinforced, as his axe was a brutal black shadow that turned silver every time the lightning flashed. Recall that Rorge as the Hound is also called the Mad Dog of Saltpans, and played the moon burner role at Saltpans, so here we can see his black weapons are like lightning. As she dispatches Rorge and is bum-rushed by Biter, her head is slammed against the ground and it says, the lightning flashed again, this time inside her skull. It also says, Brienne's chest was burning and the storm was behind her eyes, blinding her. She takes the hammer of the water's injuries next, a literally broken arm and Biter attempting to choke her and tear her head off her shoulders. Later, when she relives this horrific experience in a fevered nightmare, it says, the pain crackled up her arm like lightning a terrific reinforcement of the idea that the storm god's thunderbolt and the hammer of the waters that broke the arm of Dorne are related to one another. Because they're both moon meteors, of course. In other words, Brienne is all kinds of struck by lightning. Thus, her hanging on the tree is only a completion of this symbolism. Just as we saw at the opening of the chapter that began with the lightning-blasted gallows tree, 
These two symbols are both talking about the same concept, weirwoods as a vehicle for transformation through transcendence of death. Sir Hyle Hunt and young Padraig Payne are also hanged alongside Brienne, and they make a nice trifecta of symbolism as it turns out. The sigil of House Hunt is a dead, trussed-up brown deer. The Wiki of Ice and Fire page on westeros.org shows the deer as an antlered stag, though that is not strictly canon. House Hunt is in service to House Tarly, with its Hearn the Hunter symbolism, so it seems their stag sigil is just a continuation of the stagman symbolism of House Tarly. I also can't help but notice that Hyle Hunt is very, very close to Wild Hunt. He's definitely the sort of fellow to ride the horse of the hanged. As for Pod and House Payne, their sigil is a purple and white checkerboard with gold coins in all of the squares. In Westeros, gold coins are called dragons, while purple and white are the colors of House Dane, and purple the eyes of dragon-blooded people, and of course some members of House Dane. A bunch of dragon symbolism, in other words. Elian Payne carries on more of the same. As the king's justice or executioner, he's very like a weapon in the hand of the king, which is the role that the Lightbringer meteors and Comet play. He's the one who kills Ned and then claims blood-soaked ice for a short time, which is compared to the Comet. The Executioner and the Executioner's Sword are symbolically identical, meaning that Ilian Payne is essentially a meteor sword symbol, and this of course matches well with the implied dragon symbolism of House Payne. Ilian Payne is later given a new sword to replace ice, and it has a grinning dragonglass skull with ruby eyes on the hilt. And needless to say, this only enhances the dragon sword symbolism of the House of Pain. Get out your seat and jump around! Jump around! Sorry, I am a uh, child of the 90s, so you're going to have to forgive me the 90s humor and 90s uh, pop culture references. In any case, the silvered runes on Sir Ilian's new blade add the suggestion of a magic sword, perhaps one tied to the first men. Not Pain's actual sword, which is probably just fancy looking, but rather the deeper concept of a much older dragon sword, which Sir Ilian's sword might be symbolizing. In other words, Pod Payne is bringing the dragon symbolism to the hanging party, Hyle Hunt is laying on thick with stagman symbolism, and Brienne brings the Evenstar and Moonmaiden symbolism. It's like one of those stupid hanging models of the universe that you make in second grade, with coat hangers and styrofoam balls. And we've got everything we need for the solar stag man to stick his dragon inside the moon maiden and make an Azor Ahai Rebornling. Okay, so one more quick hanging. It's a fray, so I'm sure you won't mind. Heh. We'll make this a speed round. Call it a lightning round, even. Heh heh It's my Walter Frey laugh. Okay, so epilogue of A Storm of Swords. Merit Frey is going to meet the Brotherhood Without Banners at Oldstones to pay a ransom of 100 golden dragons for Peter Pimple, who has been captured by the Brotherhood, and to get played like a sucker, because that's what Freys are good for. One-eyed Jack B. Lucky is there again with the noose, and this time he claims to be Barrack for a moment. He's the one who ties the noose around Merit at the end of the chapter. Merit is the one hanged, so let's talk about him. Disguised beneath his weasel-faced Frey meat sack, he's actually got a ton of great symbolism going on. Because he has residual headaches from a head trauma injury suffered in the past, and because he is a raging alcoholic, he suffers from frequent blinding headaches. And as he climbs the hill to Old Stones, he knows that he will soon have a thunderstorm raging between his ears. After a passing squirrel startles Merritt enough to make him draw his sword, 
He chides himself, and it says, His heart was thumping in his chest as if he were some green boy on his first campaign. When he considers running away with the gold and abandoning Peter Pimple to the outlaws, he thinks to himself, Let them hang him. He brought this on himself. It's no more than he deserves, wandering off with some bloody camp follower like a stag in rut. Since Merritt is related to Peter, that makes Merritt the Green Boy a stag man too, and this idea is reinforced elsewhere in the chapter. Right before the line about his having a thunderstorm between his ears, it's said that he was mostly sober, save for the two horns of ale he drank when he woke up. That's perfect, because two horns is how many you need to make a good horned lord costume. A good antler hat, you might say. A bit later, as the headache builds, he feels as though an aurochs was thundering through his head, a second instance of Peter having a horned head, and the horned symbolism is tied to thunder even better. So, Peter Pimple, despite his fairly pathetic outward existence, has green man symbolism, horned man symbolism, and thunderstorm symbolism. He's still a lowly, no-good, weasel-faced, frayed traitor, but symbolically, that's all a good fit. A horned green man with a thunderstorm between his ears is exactly the right person to be hanged on the tree. When he reaches the crown of the hill at Oldstones, whose ring wall is compared to the crown on a king's head, we find Tom Sevenstrings sitting on the tomb of King Christopher IV, the Hammer of Justice. Just to, you know, give us another hammer reference here. And paired together with a singer, as in those who sing the Song of Earth. And elsewhere, Tom is called You Old Goat. Sounds a bit devilish. The Brotherhood even goes into the Godswood to hang Merritt, and Peter Pimple before him, although they don't hang either on a weirwood. Now when Merritt is finally hanged, it says, His feet left the ground, and then, up into the air he jerked, kicking and twisting, up and up and up. The language here is very suggestive of flying. We've seen that there is something about hooking up to the weirwood that is akin to flying, this is a theme of Bran's dreams of awakening his third eye, and Bloodraven promises Bran both in dream form and in person that, although he will never walk again, he will fly. Flying is very exciting, and we are going to get to that, but like young Brandon Stark, we must have patience. Before we can fly, we have to wed the tree. And that's exactly what we'll do next time, as we search for the entrance to the Weirwood Net. We have more hanging scenes coming up, but we need to go back to Yggdrasil lore for the next concept before we exact more hangman's justice. We hope you've enjoyed our analysis of Durin and Elenai, which I've been meaning to get to for a while now, and I hope you've gotten a good taste for the Yggdrasil stuff. As you can already see, the Weirwood and Greenseer ideas really do draw a lot from Odin and his gallows horse. Being hanged on the tree and being struck by lightning are both metaphors for death transformation and acquisition of the fire of the gods. And in the next episode, we'll try to drill down into just what it means for a Zora High to be a green seer, and just what it means for a tree to be given a face and to have a green seer's consciousness slip inside. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. We hope you've enjoyed Garth of the Gallows. And we hope you'll join us again next time for Weirwood Compendium 4, where we'll go further into the woods. Mm -hmm.